You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today's show, like all of ours, is no exception. <laughs> One of the most fundamental questions we can ask about reality is a question, is there a God? <laughs> and usually we're told if you think there's a God, well, you just have to take it on faith. You know, there's no real reason to believe there is a God. But is that so? <laughs> Could there actually be good theistic arguments? To discuss this, I've brought on Dr. Matthew Levering. He holds the James N. and Mary D. Perry Jr. Chair of Theology at Mundelein Seminary. He is the author or editor of over 40 books on topics in dogmatic, sacramental, moral, historical, and biblical theology. He is a translator of Gao Zimri's The Trinity, and with Gao Zimri, he co-edited the Oxford Handbook of the Trinity. Among his books... <laughs> are Scripture and Metaphysics, Aquinas and Renewal of Trinitarian Theology, and Engaging the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Love and Gift, and the Training of the Church. He co-edits two quarterly journals, Nova et Vetera and International Journal of Systematic Theology. Since 2004, he has been a participant in Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And from 2007 to 2016, he served as chair of a board of the Academy of Catholic Theology. <laughs> He co-founded the Catholic Theological Initiative and has directed the Center for Scripture, Exegesis, Philosophy, and Doctrine since 2011. So, uh, Dr. Levering, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, so I, I'm just a theologian, and I was trained at uh, Duke and Boston College. And so I got I got my doctorate there at Boston College in, in the year two thousand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've I've taught at I've taught at different places. I I taught at Ave Maria University and at University of Dayton. Mm-hmm. Now the book we're talking about is Proofs of God. And I said at the start, you know, there are some people, and sadly some Christians, who say you just have to take God's existence on faith. What do you think about that? Uh, I think if you if you take God's existence on faith, that's a that's a good a good start. In fact, um, oftentimes um, faith um, heals and elevates our minds, so we're able then to um, reflect, you know, in a more serious way upon upon the arguments for uh, why God why why we can know that God exists. Mm-hmm. You know, often oftentimes um, you know people who have faith uh, are able to. Um, Think about these matters in a way that's that's enriched, and and the the reason the reason is sometimes sometimes that um, you know our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ enables us to realize that the problem of evil has has an answer, and that answer is um, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas uh, whereas sometimes people people without faith are are struck so deeply by the, by the problem of, of evil that they, they just simply get disoriented, it seems. And they're not able then really to, um, to consider the, uh, the real uh, arguments on both sides in terms of whether God exists. Yeah, that's something interesting about your book also, because you do have arguments on both sides. Someone wanting proofs of God might be surprised to pick up and wait, 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 David Hume is in here? That's or right. Wittgenstein is in here? I mean... Whose side are you on? <laughs> yeah, the arguments are all there. It it it's um it goes back to uh, Michel de Montaigne, the mm-hmm. French uh, thinker. He he develops um, the essential arguments that David Hume uh, later puts forward. Mm-hmm. So um you know he's a, a skeptic thinker from the period of of intense warfare 
between um, Catholics and Protestants. Of course, they had they had all sorts of political reasons why they were why they were fighting. Mm-hmm. But he he himself, um, you know, developed a very a very deep skepticism, and and that influenced some um, David Hume. Mm-hmm. And Hume Hume is the one who's behind Kant, so that's kind of your lineage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we we said that faith is a good thing, but are there really arguments that can be used for God's existence? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's arguments, um, you know, that God exists, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the arguments were <laughs> the the main arguments really were discovered in in the ancient period already already by the time of of um, Aristotle and you know Aristotle's successors. Essentially, they they already have the basic arguments. Um, you know, in at their at their fingertips, as it were. You know, so so again, that when when Christianity, when when the gospel began to be proclaimed, uh, one reason why it was able to catch the minds of um, the society. You know, one reason, honestly, was that that they were ready to to believe in God because because they knew that there was a God. They they, they knew that. It's quite interesting to me to see that all these arguments against atheism, we've had them for thousands of years. It's not as if atheism suddenly showed up on the scene after the Enlightenment. It's like, oh my gosh, we got to come up with arguments for God's existence. They were already right there waiting. Yeah, they're, they're there. Yeah, the arguments are there, but, you know, so I'm, I'm not, I don't really understand um, atheism that well. I, I assume that. I, I don't know. I don't really understand. It could it could be simply a lack of education, honestly. Um, so when you when you read um when you read Hume, or when you read Kant, and they try to summarize the arguments for God's existence, they try to Kant, for example, gives an account of what the, these arguments are. He doesn't he doesn't know them at all. He never never read them. Ha, has no contact with them. You know he's um completely. You know, so and the same thing for Hume. He just simply doesn't understand what the arguments are. He doesn't understand, and so essentially, um, it's kind of a tragedy, really. Uh, there, there was. It seems as though there must have been um, some kind of a break in in um, education where where they just simply weren't really getting educated in the in the Christian the the the, the, um, the past the Christian past the um, the thought of the great christian thinkers as well as um the ancients such as aristotle no, who knows in fact that, that trend has sadly continued today i i meet very few atheists out who really engage with the best arguments on the other side i remember when i was in seminary and i read richard dawkins's the god delusion and he started going through the five arguments for aquinas now i talk to people and say I can be absolutely sure of one thing. He has never, ever read the arguments. He's probably looked up a Wikipedia page or something about them. They, they, they aren't convinced. His refutations are not convincing to anyone who's studied them, studied the Thomistic arguments for any amount of time. Uh, that's true. But, you know, another one thing I try to point, point out in my book because um, a lot of times it is it is the case that uh, um, Christians who are reflecting upon God's existence um, tend tend to go first first to Thomas Aquinas, and, and I think there's there's good reasons to do so. Yeah, but but on the other hand, um, it is important to realize that that the, the fathers of the church all um, knew knew the basic proofs, and they, they they would use them and mention them. So you know, I, I have um, work in in the book. I have I have material. I have um, accounts of of Augustine, but also also Greek fathers. Um, I do I do um, um, Gregory of Nazianzus is my representative mm-hmm. there, but you know, but if there's a book by Yaroslav Pelikan that sort of lays it all out, but but I, I kind of just in a few pages, <laughs> you know, you get you get the basic point um, from Gregory of Nazianzus and John of Damascus. Those are the two um, thinkers from the Greek fathers, um, but the, the proofs are there. That's that's what I'm. What I found, and you know, what I found very interesting, because um, you know, I mean, the, the Greek fathers are intensely Christ-centered. Their their minds are formed by faith. 
but but the proofs of God existence are part of their part of their theological work, part of the work by which they um, help Christians understand, you know, who this God is that, that we um, worship. So that's that's one of the functions of the proofs of God existence is it helps Christians uh, avoid um, kind of making God into some sort of finite reality. It, it strengthens our minds. It refines our thinking. You know, that kind of thing kind of leads me very well in, because it seems related to the next thing I was going to ask about, that we have some friends in the presuppositious reformed camp and such. <laughs> you say, well, here's the problem with all these proofs of God's existence. None of them get you to the Christian God. None of them get you to Jesus. None of them get you to the Trinity or anything of that sort. So since they don't get you explicitly to a Christian God, we shouldn't accept them. Mm. Well, you know, so the only answer to that is you got to just kind of think to yourself, well, well, what, what do they achieve? Right. You know, and so, so what they, what they achieve is that they, they help, help, you know, that essentially that an infinite uh, source of all, of all being, an infinite source of all, of all goodness, you know, is, is a reality. You know, but of course you don't, if you have faith, you know, you don't really need to know that through philosophical reasoning. So for the person of faith, what, what this philosophical reasoning does is help, help to purify the mind of our constant tendency to want to think of God as in a finite way. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, that's a problem is that we, we have a tendency to want to think of God as, um, you know, the, a big, a big guy up in yeah. the, up in the sky, <laughs> even, even Christians. <laughs> yeah. You know, so we, when we, even, so even um, when we think of the Trinity, we tend to think of um, three persons and then, then the, um, we kind of think of like the sun and the spirit. Well, they kind of do like a wonder twin powers act and the sun sort of descends from the sky, you know, and kind of enters into the human nature, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. And kind of, and then the Holy Spirit sort of zooms in from from the left hand corner. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in other words, we, we have a very um, a tendency. You know, we're we're just human. You know, we have a tendency to to think about God as so, and to speak about God as so. God, we're a creature. You know, but God God's not a creature, and that's one of the really important things that that the proofs of God um, help us to reflect upon. Yeah, I've said if we went to medieval times, we could get. Moses Mamedides, the Jew, Avicenna, the Muslim, and Thomas Aquinas, a Christian, and they could all sit together and they would all agree on the proofs of God, pretty much. But then they'd have to go and say, now we have to argue which one of us has the right God at that point. <laughs> well, the, and, and the, the proofs of God, does, they, they, they don't really establish that much. They just simply get you to the fact that, that there is a reality that, that is not a creature. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the source, the source of all finite being, you know, and, and that's kind of, you know, that's what they do, but that's not, that's not, um, that's not a personal God. It's, it's a God who is, who is infinitely perfect, mm-hmm. but, um, there's no, you know, there's no God who reaches out, who loves us, who redeems us. But essentially the truth is nobody begins with the, the proofs, you know, at least, at least I don't see why you would. Um, the proofs are not kind of a, a beginning point. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they're intended to strengthen the mind and to um, refine, to purify our thinking about the, the God whom we worship. And so that's that's the case whether you're you're um, Jewish or Muslim, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Christian. I mean, in other words, the proofs do strengthen and refine. They also they also help you um, argue in public because sometimes I, I have run into this. It's it's very it's quite distressing. You know, that sometimes, um, you know, people think of God as like um, the Easter bunny, or sometimes you might even have this sense of God as um, the great pumpkin, <laughs> you know, where we're all, we're all kind of waiting in the pumpkin patch, <laughs> you know, where is this guy? Uh, <laughs> so the, the proofs of God remind us essentially that God's not a creature, and, and that there is a, there is an infinite source of all, of all created being. That, that's the fundamental yeah, as someone who had Peanuts comic strips growing up my life, I really understand what you're saying there. Mm. Now, we we talked some about how the church fathers had these proofs. They, they actually 
didn't really originate many of them on their own. You'd see these in Plato, Aristotle, and others beforehand. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, you do. But now remember, though, um, I mean, these Plato and Aristotle are sort of, are sort of working um, by, by, as it were, the, the grace of, I don't know if you want to call it grace, but certainly by the, the gift of created reason. And so um, you don't want, you don't want to kind of say that, that Plato and Aristotle, they kind of, they know the true God. You know, well, no one's saying that. You know, what, what happens in Plato and Aristotle is that um, they come to know certain things, certain ways, certain paths of uh, moving beyond materialism. Mm-hmm. You know, moving beyond the idea that only the material is real. You know, that's, that's what's happening in Plato and Aristotle, that they're moving beyond this, uh, this notion you know, that, that only matter, only the cosmos, only only what is empirical is, is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're doing that, and it's important what they're doing. And when we look at these proofs of God, even as Christians, it's okay to say, I don't really find this one convincing. So oh, yeah. like if you look at the ontological <laughs> argument, I don't find it convincing. In modern times, I don't really care for scientific arguments for theism. Such yeah. and that's okay. That's right. That's right. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's for our faith. You, when we use um, arguments for God's existence, it's really we're attempting to refine our, our thinking. That's I've, I've said that a couple times, but but our faith doesn't depend upon you know in, in any way. You know, these priests, of course, of course, it's biblical. I mean, Saint Paul teaches that that um, God can be known. You know, yeah. So. It's a biblical truth that, that we can know God's existence. So let's start going through some of the proofs that we have. When we get to Tertullian, you say he's the first one who really starts presenting these arguments. What does Tertullian say? Okay, well, let me open up here the book here. Yeah, good old Tertullian. Well, you know, he's, he's mainly, yeah, of course, he's drawing on the ancient tradition, Stoicism and, and whatnot. Um, so there's there's nothing new nothing new in Tertullian. Um, you know, it's the the main the main interest for me in Tertullian is this fact that Tertullian is known for his claim that there's no relationship between Athens and Jerusalem. You know, what what does Athens matter to Jerusalem? Yeah. That kind of thing. But you know, I, I think. Um, that, that's essentially the reason. Uh, the reason why you know I, I threw Tertullian into the book, you know, because he, you know, he does um, in, insist uh, against against Marcion. Mm-hmm. He's fighting with Marcion, and, and the the whole kind of this, the dualism, you know, that you have sort of an evil force and a good force, and 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 so on. And Tertullian insists that the Creator God. The creator has made himself known. I mean, Tertullian's really building upon St. Paul, huh? Yeah. yeah. Has made himself known through um, through through creatures. And so he, he argues that the, even during the period of idolatry, um, Tertullian says that um, the knowledge of God never disappeared. So um, there there always was um, some, you know, true true knowledge of God, you know, according to, to Tertullian. Uh, again, again, his, his arguments... Um, you know, attempting to show uh, that um, that Marcion is, is wrong, that that kind of dualism, that kind of anti-creator. You know, that's what he's that's what he's employing these Greek philosophers, you know, mainly Stoic in origin, um, to show that um, that Marcion is not correct. But but you know, he doesn't he doesn't really um, trace out any any um, of the the proofs got in, in detail. He just simply refers to them as kind of co- common cultural knowledge. Yeah, it's just something that that is available in the culture, and he just simply kind of, ref- you know, general generally just just refers to them. Hey, what what difference though does refuting Marcion though make to proofs of God? I mean, why should we care today about refuting someone who lived in the second century? <laughs> Well, you know, it's. I mean, the, the whole the whole question is coming coming down to, um, you know, whether whether um, you know, the whole issue of the creation. Really, that's that's Marcion's concern. Is is that matter? You know, he thinks matter is is evil, and so 
So that's kind of, I mean, that, that's what's up, you know? And so in our, in our own time, you know, we we're dealing with a different, a different uh, angle on this. I mean, but I think we still, we still have a certain kind of, kind of Gnosticism going on. Um, you know, that Marcion, that, that sort of dualism um, is, is intensely, intensely pessimistic about, about the world. And, and I think, I think that if you, if you actually look at, if you actually look at the great, the great um, current, the leading current atheists, um, you'll, you'll get atheists who, who say that it is a sin to bring a child into the world, for example, it's said it's evil. An atheist would say that it's evil. They're, they're leading atheists that talk about this, like um, it's evil to bring children into the world. Mm-hmm. And so there's a deep pessimism, a deep, a deep sense of the darkness of um, existence, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's really what's behind, that's what's behind um, Marcion. And, and today we're fighting the same fight, essentially, you know, it's Christians insisting upon the fact that that reality um, is rooted in, in infinite good goodness, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. We've got Dr. Matthew Levering here talking about his book, Proofs of God. <laughs> but if you're here next week, it's uh, September is Suicide Prevention Month. And so that I'm going to be bringing my favorite guest on, and I'm sure Dr. Levering will understand when I say who it is. That's no slight. <laughs> My wife, a suicide survivor, is going to be joining us mm. to talk about the topic. So I, I think anyone can understand why I say my wife is my favorite guest to have on the show here. So Allie and I will be here together next week talking about suicide and suicide prevention. Mm. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Levering. And, you know, this that whole suicide prevention thing, that's, that does fit in with what you were saying about the way that the world is viewed today, a, a dark, dismal place and no good bringing life into it and things of that sort, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, essentially today, you know, you have this sense that, that material things such as ourselves, we, we're in the insofar as we're material, but of course for an atheist, we're just simply matter. And basically the idea is that we're all headed to eternal annihilation. You know, just tremendous darkness, tremendous, um, you know, everlasting annihilation mm-hmm. you know, of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's kind of, that's kind of dark. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, the, the good news is found in Jesus Christ. But mm-hmm. the, the point, the point is uh, that, that ancient philosophers were, were already, already addressing this type of skepticism, you know, and they were trying to, they were moving out of it. They were refining their understanding, moving away from worship of the gods because they knew that was false. Mm-hmm. And as they moved away from worship of the gods, they were also, um, you know, refining their, their understanding of, of what it, how, how, how do you go about, um, you know, not just simply becoming a, um, essentially a skeptical materialist, you know, because of course there was um, ancient materialism, which believed that matter was the only reality. That was, that was the philosophical um, option in the time. Now, another one you bring up, I think he does come later chronologically than Augustine, but Augustine's such a big figure. We should wait till later. <laughs> Gregory of Nyssa, I think that's how you pronounce it. And such. Or Nazianzus. Yeah. So, yeah. What did what did he argue? Well, so so he's kind of you know he's got more arguments, certainly more than um, you know he spells them out more. I mean, there's, there's, again, it's uh, that they're they're appealing to these arguments that are simply in the culture. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't necessarily have to spell them all that out all that much, but um, you know, he's, he's doing things like demonstrating that God, um, fills all things without being bodily. Um, like here's, here's, let me give one of the arguments. Okay. Um, uh, the basic idea is that God is not in the order of moves, moving or moved things, things that depend upon, uh, um, something else to be moved. And, and so this is the basic, um, Thomistic argument from causality, you know, and, and of course, comes from Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a basic, um, and 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 the um, the whole question, as Gregor points out, is like how how is the whole moved? So 
you know, movement is um, actuality. Movement is, um, you know, going from potency to action to to moving. It's it's um, being or act. And so the question is this um, for for Gregory. He just says, look, you got a cosmos, and and everything in the cosmos is related to the other things in in, in actuality in movement. But but he says, who who moves the whole cosmos? How did the whole the whole cosmos is is yet another thing. So it too would have to depend upon a mover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since it's just a finite reality. The cosmos itself is a finite reality. So it too would have to depend upon a mover. And, and if you add another finite mover, you know, then, then you get an, uh, uh, you know, essentially another fi- finite mover is just part of the cosmos again, you know, so, you know, the cosmos is just simply all finite movers. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be, there, um, there has to be an infinite mover. Now, um, that's the basic idea that he's putting out. I think it's important to understand macros. We can say the same thing later on when we get to Thomas Aquinas, that sometimes when people say, see motion, they think, ah, Isaac Newton, we already dealt with that one. Uh, Yeah, but it's not that. Yeah, that's right. It's not, uh, yeah, people get, in their mind, they get the impression of, um, like, things moving across the screen or something. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's not what it is. It's it, what we're talking about here is the act of being of finite things. Just their sheer, their sheer, their sheer being. And there are some people out today who also, on the Christian side, sadly embrace the <laughs> idea that God Himself is being moved. So it'd be open theism, <laughs> the most moved mover. Oh no! <laughs> well, that would destroy. Well, that just makes God into into finite, into another, into like a big, a big, a big thing, a big, yeah. a big, a, a big rational, a big finite rational thing. He, he, he yeah, could kind of be like a Superman figure. That's right. That's right. But he certainly, he couldn't be the creator of all things. He couldn't be the one who sustains all being. You know, he couldn't. So, but Aristotle helped us out here by, by distinguishing, um, potency and act and getting us thinking in terms of actuality, you know, so there, there we could realize that, um, there's different modes of actuality of finite actuality. So, so that a rock, a rock has a mode of existing, a mode of being an act, you know, yeah, but there are some, help us out. there are some Christians who like this and say, yeah, but this is Greek thought and this is Greek thought polluting, our Christianity, Christianity's Jewish, it's not Greek, so we need to just avoid this Greek terminology and such. Um, and, you know, I would say that, I mean, there's a number of, a number of um, proofs that, that, that you can find in Scripture itself, but, but to me, Romans 1, you know, 19 to 20, well, that's, that's pretty important. Mm-hmm. You know, but if so, you know, what you going to do with that? Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, to me, to me, like a Christian who, a, a Christian who doesn't want these proofs, it, it doesn't bother me that much. You know, I mean, let him embrace the Lord and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the, the danger of not paying attention to these proofs is that you can wind up, um, you know, in a situation where you you worship a finite God. You might you might even worship three three finite gods. You could fall into tritheism. <laughs> You know, essentially, these these proofs are just simply ways of refining our mind and m- helping us move beyond, um, move mentally beyond um, some sort of ma- materialism where everything ha- has to be finite. Yeah. We could just simply say, our truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter if it comes from the Greeks or anywhere <laughs> else. If it's true, it's from God. Uh, that's right. And, and, and you've got to realize that there's a good, a good bit of this truth was picked up by, by the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to emphasize that point. And now, now we get to now we get to Augustine, who I do believe does come before Gregory. So, and but Augustine is such a major figure in church history. I mean, all three branches of Christianity pay great attention to Augustine, even if they don't agree with him on everything. <laughs> but what proofs did Augustine give us? Uh, so with Augustine, um, you know he's he, he's he's obviously not not as inspired by Aristotle. Mm-hmm. He, he read Aristotle. He he knew it, knew Aristotle somewhat, but um, you know he's he's going to um, move move in the direction of the Neoplatonic proofs uh, that you you get from 
Plotinus and, and, and other, many other, uh, Plotinus wasn't the only Neoplatonist. Mm. But, but of course, we, we did need to realize that Plotinus um, was profoundly read in, in Aristotle and, and, and Plato. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's not it's not as though this sort of comes from nowhere and Plotinus sort of jumps in. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, Plotinus was um, weaving together uh, in certain ways Aristotle and Plato, and and so essentially when when Augustine's trying to think of a proof, that what he'll do is he'll move inside himself, he'll move interiorly, you know, into into the perfections of being. Mm-hmm. So he'll he'll move he'll move and he'll he'll see truth. You know, for example, this is argument, you know, typical argument of Augustine, you know, is that he, he sees that you you move inside yourself and you know a truth, um, like like two plus two equals four or something like that. And and so it's like where did that truth come from? You know, what what grounds that truth? Because because you you don't ground the truth. The truth doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, so so where's the ground of that truth? You know, it's it's an eternal truth. Mm-hmm. But, but where's the ground of it? And so Augustine will then will then move deeper um, and see that the light of truth he moves he moves from from a particular truth about a material thing into simply he moves into platonic mode into simply truth itself. So if you if you've ever read Plato's Republic or something like that, you know it's the same basic idea. But but he moves um you know from the particular thing the particular truth. And he realizes that that truth is is not material. It doesn't depend upon matter. Mm-hmm. Whether or not there was matter, there, there would there would there'd still be this truth. You know, so he moves into a, a sense of an infinite ground, an infinite ground of goodness and truth and being. That he does it first by by moving interior into the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also can't forget his famous slogan: "You have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find." our peace in you. Amen, brother. Amen. And he means by that, he doesn't mean any God that we can prove. He means to simply the, the Lord of the Lord revealed by um, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But remember the Lord revealed by Jesus Christ is, um, it's not a finite, not a finite creature. You know, mm-hmm. that, so he's the creator. He's, he's the logos. And he, um, he gave to his human creatures, um, reason by, by which we could seek him, you know, so now, as we move further, before we get to my personal favorite, there is definitely Anselm, as we talk about. Anselm kind of revolutionized <laughs> things because he did come up with a very original argument, didn't he? Well, uh, Anselm, yeah, you, could, you can say, you can say. I mean, it's 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 influenced by Augustine, of course. You know, yeah. So, I mean, it is. You know, Anselm's argument would be heavily influenced by that that Neoplatonic strain of, of thinking. Where um, for for Anselm, the key the key to understanding Anselm's argument, in my view, would be would be this: that you've got to realize that the order of being, you know, so just think of think of the order of being, which is all things that that are in the finite mode, you know. And so for for Anselm, that order. You know, is an order of reason, an order of, because it's created by the logos. You know, you see what? So, so being and and wisdom uh, are are interchangeable. You know, for Anselm. Mm-hmm. And so, at that point, at that point, if you if you can show that something, you know, Anselm then moves moves to show that if you can think something, and you think. That the thing that that which nothing greater can exist, if you can think it, <laughs> it it must exist, or else of course it wouldn't be that which nothing greater can exist. You, you, you see what I mean? But so yeah. he, he's he's drawing together the order of of, of reason mm-hmm. and the order of being in a in a way that um, Aristotle would would correct him on this a bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I've. Uh... I've heard it better. If you look at great thinkers, atheists and theists alike, after Anselm, pretty much everyone has something to say about the ontological argument. It gets remembered. It, it does. It, um, yeah, it really does have. But you got to remember that in part why they're why the later thinkers are attracted to the ontological argument is that is that a lot of these later thinkers that you know about, 
are um, what you would call idealists or, or people who um, focus upon the mind. You know, so that would be mm-hmm. that would be the case certainly with um, Immanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's why as he's so interested in in um, Anselm's argument because he himself thinks that reality is essentially what we can know in the categories of our mind. Mm-hmm. Phenomena, phenomena. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like what my seminary professor of philosophy said about the ontological mm-hmm. argument. He said, William Lane Craig is convinced by it. Alvin Plantinga is convinced by it. Jesus isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. You know, William Lane Craig is a brilliant man. He came here to speak at the seminary where I teach, a Mundelein Seminary, and, mm-hmm. and I, I, got to, I got to meet him out. I don't think I, I, I sent him a book that I wrote, but I don't, I don't know that he remembers me. But he's obviously he has a strong legal mind, but, but I, I think he's um, I'm not sure that he's really that well read in, in um, ancient philosophy. Well, I like to mind everyone at this point that you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And if you want to help us out, go to my website at deeperwatersofprojects.com and you'll find a link on the side here that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Well, when you go there, you'll be taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus instead. Have you gone to the right place? Did my website mess up? Did Mike Lacona hack into my website? No, everything's working fine. The reason you go to Mike Lacona's website is Mike and his wife Debbie are my in-laws. And so, when you make your donation, you do it through their ministry, Risen Jesus. When you get in touch with them, or me, or my wife, Ari, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. (laughs) We will get that donation, and it will be tax deductible. And uh, we also have uh, an ebook area with ebooks I've written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian, or co-written Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, and others. And we've got one more way you can support us here. Now, Dr. Levering, I saw in show prep, I think it was your wife helping you out here. <laughs> Does she like jewelry? Uh, I, admit, I admit that she, she does not. Wow. I don't know why. Well, we have the first one because usually most of them do like jewelry. And we have a jewelry store here at Shorty. We've got a friend who runs that one for us. And whatever you purchase from that jewelry store, just get back to touch with me and let me know. 25% of that goes to deeper waters. Mm. So, guys, you know what I always tell you. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, <clears throat> share a podcast with friends and such, and go on iTunes and leave a review of a Deeper Waters podcast. Good, positive review. I love to see those. Now, Dr. Levering, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? You know, I I, I don't. I, you asked me before. Yeah. We we donated to local to local things like um, yeah. But and then I have just forgotten the name of the the we we donate to um pro, pro life ministries essentially. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but but unfortunately, I've uh, it slipped my mind and I haven't. You know, so that's that's one of the things we donate to. You know, okay. But, well, if anyone's interested, just go back and check out archives. Pretty much every January, we devote to abortion, and you'll find several great causes that you can support there. Now, let's get back to the proofs of God, and let's get to my very favorite. And this can surprise a lot of people because, I mean, you're Catholic, I'm Protestant, but Thomas Aquinas is still the guy to go to. But, yeah, I love Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And I, we, we talked earlier about how Richard Dawkins gets some gets the proofs wrong, but even you said in your book a professional philosopher like Graham Oppie mm. seems to get the seems to get the Thomistic arguments wrong, doesn't he? 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's sort of sad. It's, um, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, there's, they, they, um, draw, they draw upon, it's like, it looks to me like they're drawing upon some 17th or 18th century sources, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, but not, not really reading Aquinas, you know, so, but why, why they're not, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, and of course there's a number of wonderful books, uh, much better, much better than, than, I mean, my book is a little handbook where you can go through many different thinkers and kind of get the key point. Yeah. But um, there's, in terms of Aquinas, you know, you can, there's books by Dennis, Dennis Turner, very, very valuable book and a, and a extremely valuable work by um, Edward Fazer. Oh, yes. You know, and so he, he's really the master. He's, there's many others, you know. It's, um, yeah, but I, I do, Edward Fazer has a wonderful book that's not just Aquinas, it's Five Thinkers, the five, essentially five, five proofs of God. Yeah. And I, I really, I really just can't speak highly enough about that book. You know, it's just a great book. But again, um, Aquinas, it's, it's not, again, for Aquinas, the proofs of God, um, kind of they, they function in order to help purify the mind of the Christian as as we read about the God who names himself, you know, I am who I am and, and so on. You know? I mean in other words, uh, for Aquinas the proofs of God are are not intended um you know to sort of okay now we got God God's assistant proofs and now we can go see see what we think about Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's not like that. It's uh you know that we 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 come to faith and 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 our faith is strong because our faith is um is not irrational you know <laughs> yeah, i mean that's that's important part but also it helps to um refine our minds and purify as we think about god now in all fairness if you took the average layman in any church mm. catholic or protestant or orthodox and they did sit down and read the arguments from aquinas they might look and say um, what's the argument here? Because it really is difficult to understand if you're not familiar with the categories, isn't it? Well, you know, I think so. It's um, essentially the, the the problem oftentimes comes down to to uh, a failure to really think about um, you know the whole difference between potentiality and actuality. You know, so that that becomes that becomes a problem for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, so, I don't know, but I, I've never, you know, myself, I've never, I've never thought that the proofs were, were, were particularly difficult. They make, they make sense to me, you know, Aquinas' proofs in terms of, of from causality, you know. Yeah, Let, let's look at one of his arguments as well, and that would be the fifth one, because in today's day and age, people look and say, Ah, uh, that's that's the intelligent design movement. Right there. That's not really what it is, is it? Uh, so the fifth, the fifth one is essentially um, based on uh, the fact that anything, you know, um, moves to an end, and anything moves to a goal. You know, so it could you could be thinking about the whole cosmos, you know, which is everything, everything finite. I mean. Sometimes people talk about like multiple, like what if we have multiple universes? Well, that's still in Aquinas' view, that'd still be the same. That'd still be the one, um, the one entity that we call the cosmos, essentially the the finite realm, the realm of finite things. But but the point is that in the fifth way, which thing about you, you don't have to think about the whole cosmos. You can simply just think about why does that one bird, you know, um, move in a theological way. You know why it's they're ordered toward toward an end, but they're not rational. No. Or or you could think of a tree, you know, or or even like a rock with gravity. I think uh, I think Fesser uses an iceberg floating in the ocean. <laughs> says, it makes the water colder. It does not turn the water into cotton candy. That's it. That's it. So why is there an, why is there order? You know why why is there order? That's that's a key question because. Um, you know, you got, and of course, John of Damascus had the same argument. But it's the, the question is like, why is we we take it for granted? We take it for granted that there would be order in a cosmos that, that you know, and and so there is order, there is theological order, and these things are not rational, and so and so why there must be a cause, there must be a cause of of any 
you know, teleology or just movement toward a goal mm-hmm. um, on the part of non-rational uh, things. What I, what I mean by movement toward a goal, of course, is, um, you know, regular, regular movements that recur uh, repeatedly, you know, but, but are being done by non-rational agents and don't, don't involve um, creatures that have, um, you know, mind and in the sense of, you know, rational freedom. I'm glad you also said the multiverse isn't a defeater in these arguments as well. And I think we should mm-hmm. add in add in another one here. And that would be the idea of uh, of evolution. For instance, it, it's not a defeater. Either. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Eddie and Gerson would go so far as to say that... Uh, um, Evolution is essentially teleological because in evolution everything does act towards an end, survivor and production and such. So uh, I think it's in his book from Aristotle to Darwin and back again. A very brilliant book. Mm-hmm. A very important book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Now, we. Uh, Let's talk some about the skeptics here, since they're okay, well, like yeah. Hume, for instance. Hume is one of the most famous ones, and of course, one of the main arguments he brings out is the the argument from evil. Yeah, that's true. But with Hume, though, I, I think the main thing he does is um, he, he gets he gets rid of the argument from from causality. You know, and, and of course that, that basic argument, you know, which you which you do find, in, he he didn't he didn't know Aquinas's version of it, mm-hmm. but but what but what he realized he's getting this from Montaigne, you know, skepticism really. He just says that that you, there really is no real real relation uh, between cause and effect. In other words, you you might just you might just one day have an effect that didn't have a cause. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and so he he un um, instead of re- uh, recognizing the the unity of cause and effect, you know uh, he he simply says maybe you can just have the effect, and and so you don't need a cause. Uh, he says we have no we have no way of um, claiming you know that you would actually ever ever need a cause, mm-hmm. and, and so on. So that's kind of the key, the key thing that he does, and that that is taken forward then, you know, by by all the all the contemporary atheists, you know, just that that basic that basic line, mm-hmm. and and of course we have his famous argument against miracles as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. He certainly would be um, a, a materialist of a kind, but. But again, again, the interesting thing for me about Hume is that that everything everything in Hume relies upon this idea, which is completely, when you think about it, it's completely nonsensical. <laughs> you know, it's completely, it's 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 way more crazy than believing in in um, supernatural <laughs> miracles or something. And the idea just simply is that all of a sudden you might actually have an effect, which means like a finite reality that that comes from nothing. You know that, but that literally has no cause. Literally, no cause whatsoever. I mean, to me, that's that's complete uh, right there. That's I mean, the imagination and the kind of the willful suspension of common sense. Like you have to to do to come to think of that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that requires a lot of um, a lot of faith. <laughs> you know, faith in the sense of kind of nonsense, uh, not faith in the Christian sense. <laughs> Now, when I was in seminary, my professor taught me kind of referred to Kant as the sort of antithesis of Aquinas. I think that Kant would be, you would almost read Aquinas, I think he was arguing against Kant. So, what did, I mean, Kant, I think he was a believer in God, but he didn't think the proofs worked. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, Kant is an interesting character because. You know, I, I criticized Kant to somebody, and and then they reminded me, and this was, uh, they reminded me before I published the book, so I was able to make a change in the book. <laughs> you know, they said to me that hey, wait a second, Kant does have one proof for God's existence. You know, it's based on his whole, whole understanding of um, practical reason, and and he basically says that that if God didn't exist, 
if God didn't exist, then you would never have a reason to do anything, you know, because um, your, your practical reason, you seek happiness. And, and yet you know that you're not going to find happiness in this life. So if, if God and eternal life don't, don't exist, um, there's, there's no reason to do a single thing. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know, you know, the, the conscious scholar would, would give you a more complex um, account of that argument, but it's the argument from, from practical reason. And Kant says that it's a postulate. You know, it's not it's not an argument um, from you know the from as as we're um, speculative reason. You know, it's it's a postulate of practical reason. Practical reason being being what we do to move toward ends. So, so at least Kant has that. <laughs> and then we can also move further on in our time, and you get to. Wittgenstein, who also argued, <laughs> I think he was, I think Bertrand Russell said he was responsible for two great philosophical revolutions, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, Wittgenstein, a very, a very complex, a, a very powerful thinker. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I wonder, I wonder, you know, when, when real philosophers <laughs> read, read my book, you know, whether they, they think I got, I got Wittgenstein uh, correct. I mean, I, I read Wittgenstein, but but my my thought on Wittgenstein was um, taken really from my, my friend Steve Long. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve is a Thomistic a Thomistic philosopher, and um, he's read read quite widely. And mm-hmm. but anyhow, so Wittgenstein with the whole idea of the of the language games and distinct languages, you know that that sort of stuff. Um, Wittgenstein is sort of you know. Uh, I mean, what, so what, what part of the content would, should, we, should we talk about? You, know, you, you, tell, you tell me. Yeah, it's certainly a fascinating thinker. Well, whichever one you think is the most important, because we've only got a few minutes left, and mm. you know much more about him than I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I, I, wish I, I wish I did really. I got a funny story about all this. Is that, you know, when, when I wrote my section on, on Heidegger, uh, this friend of mine who was reading the manuscript for me said, um, but wasn't a philosopher, said, look, he, he didn't understand my section on Heidegger. And I said, well, I didn't understand it either, but I know I got it right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Wittgenstein, you know, what's he doing? I mean, he, he essentially thinks that you can't, it's, it's stuff like you can't ask the question of whether some, of whether, of why something exists than nothing. I mean, he, he simply, he simply gets to the point, really, where you you can't um, ask that question, you know, because it doesn't fit within the within a particular language game. It sort of goes outside um, any particular language game. Mm-hmm. In my view, in my view, what what's going on with Wittgenstein is he's a brilliant thinker, an incredible genius, working within the conscious system. Mm-hmm. So within the conscious system, you can only talk about you only have these categories of the mind, you know. <laughs> And so that's really what's up. And and what Wittgenstein is doing is um, putting pressure uh, pressure on that conscious system and saying, hey, you know, um, if if these are the categories of the mind, um, he's trying to trying to show that it's it's not just the individual; it's the whole it's the whole culture and and so on. But you know, truth be told, you know, I I don't know that I can. I can give an adequate account of Wittgenstein. I mean, he's he's pointing toward mystery. Mm. You know, he is trying to do that. He's trying to he's trying to say that um, that there's a riddle. But even though we can't ask it, we can't we can't talk about it. You know, <laughs> and and there's something like there's something like um, something like Karl Barth here. You know, where he he's saying because because these guys are moving after Kant, or it's more like Heidegger maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, after Kant's, basically, you can't talk about these these realities. You can't talk about God because God is not within the finite. You know, we're just, we just our concepts are finite. We can't we can't move out outside the t- temporal spatial mm-hmm. bounds of our finite concepts. And so you can't even you can't even think about God. <laughs> that's Heidegger and that's Wittgenstein. But but what you can do perhaps is you know point point or gesture, you know, toward toward um some some mystery and Wittgenstein tries to do that you know as we get near the end I think uh what you something you said a while ago is appropriate how you said you know you give kind of like a little snapshot of Aquinas you want a further version go to Fesser and oh, others yeah. 
And I, I think you'd say about everyone your book, you, no one should pick up your book and read and say, well, I'm going to make my decision on this side. <laughs> but your hope, uh-huh. hope, I think, would be that you'd look at it and you'd say, now that thinker seems interesting. I'm going to go back and read him. Uh, that's true. But now, now it, it's also the case so that uh, my book is um, – but I'm, I'm, I do. I, I give a number of quotations in the book. I mean, so so you'll get the. You really will get the basic um, text. You'll get a lot of text in, in my book. It's it's not an anthology. Yeah. But, but you are going to get a lot of text, and so you'll you'll be able to see if if your mind is um, trained. You know, you'll you'll be able to see the, the basic line of argument in in each thinker. But um, but on the other hand, I, I do have to say that that this book. This book is um, introductory. Yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, and and so the main intention of it is just to you know bring bring um, uh, essentially remind ourselves that apologetics is is not not a separate task from from theology. You know that um, it belongs to theology. So I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a believer in the Holy Trinity. But that doesn't mean that I don't need to think about um, apologetics and, and think about yeah. the mystery of God's existence. I, I need to do that. Mm. That's is, there's a call upon each Christian, mm-hmm. you know, to really take seriously, you know, the question of our culture. You know, one que- and one question is: Is it rational? Is it reasonable? You know, to believe in God, or is it just like the great pumpkin? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and so it's it's important to important to give people essentially the book um if you read the book you know you'll you'll get a sense of of all the all the positions available and um you know you'll get you can you can then you can work from there but yeah the the main the main um purpose of the book you know it's just essentially it's a theological book you know the main purpose is that hey we get, you know, being a theologian, being a Christian, you know, involves defending the faith and, and thinking about the realities of our faith. And if you're interested in the book, as of the time of this recording right now, on Amazon, the Kinder version is fourteen eighty five. <laughs> the paperback is nineteen twenty. It's Proofs of God, Doctor Matthew Levering. Now, Doctor Levering, do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Well, you can always email me at my um, Mundaline Seminary uh, email address, which is which is online. But you know what? I think I think even there, I probably um, my my email address there is mlevering mm-hmm. at usml.edu. But but even there, probably I just use my Yahoo account. But really, I, I use my Yahoo account, and my Yahoo account is mj. J is my wife well, from a wife's name, Joy. Mm-hmm. MJ Levering at yahoo.com. Yeah, I like I like having emails. Do but, you? But have- I tell you what, I should I should say one more thing though. What you said, okay. uh, if the if if there's atheists who are watching, um, hey, don't argue with me. You should argue with um, Ed Faser or one of these. You know, mm-hmm. like you know, you probably know Edward Faser's blog. Oh yeah, go there and here here. That's right. That's right. He'll straighten you out. You know, but <laughs> yeah, just, you should read my book to get a sense of what all the options really are. Though that's that's what you do with my book. Now, do you have any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, I just praise God that, that this exists and that um, we're, we're trying to spread the gospel here. Mm-hmm. Very grateful for um, ecumenical uh, work mm-hmm. in, in the United States among fellow Christians. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, as we as we deal with the fact that you know that there's uh, so much need, so much need for renewal, so much need for um, Christian proclamation, so much need for our own um, increasing and in, in depth of holiness and our own um, sanctification, our own reliance upon Jesus, and. Um, so I just uh, really would want to say a prayer that people listening are, um, you know, raising their minds to the Lord, trusting the Lord, and and realizing that that the that the world that we see it is a very beautiful creation of God, but um, the Lord is in charge, and this this life is is not not is not the end. <laughs> I mean, I guess that. Yeah, I, I think it's amusing when you talk about ecumenicalism because my wife right now has been exploring Eastern Orthodoxy and such, so she's asking a lot of questions. And I'm, when you said, I think 
Okay, I'm thinking I'm a Protestant even <laughs> interviewing a Catholic scholar about to go in about to go to an Orthodox church. I mean, how do you get more ecumenical than that? <laughs> well, I love it, and, and of course, um, yeah, anyone who's who's a Catholic, we we love the Orthodox. I mean, they such a beautiful liturgy. It's a good it's a good lesson for the Catholics. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Doctor Devlin, we'd like to thank you for taking your time to come on here, and hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Hey, thanks so much. It's a privilege. Thanks I so much, everyone. Next week, my wife is going to be joining us. We're going to be talking about suicide, how serious the topic it is, and what we can do to stop it. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs> <laughs>